please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're continuing to, to look at the early church here, and we've seen earlier in the chapter the apostles are continuing to proclaim the gospel. They've performed signs and wonders in the temple, and now we see the response of the of the Jewish leaders. And so we're in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. If you're able to this morning, please stand with me in honor of God as, as we read his word together. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him... Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we recognize the, the greatness of the message that your Son, Jesus, is the Christ, and we pray that you would help us uh, 
to be faithful in the, in the proclamation and the teaching of that message. We pray that you would give us endurance by your grace, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ever since the, the founding of the church, there has been opposition to the church and its message. We encounter opposition here in, in Acts chapter 5. We, we see that the Jewish people continuing, the Jewish leaders continuing to stand in opposition to the gospel message. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see opposition from other government entities as well. We're going to see the Roman government opposing the church. As the, the decades and the centuries after the events in the book of Acts take place, we, we continue to see opposition from the Roman Empire. And we see opposition from the Roman Empire not only within or without, but also eventually within as the Roman Empire kind of infiltrates the church, becomes a part of the church. And we see opposition from, from the, to the gospel message even within the church. You think about as the centuries continue, the time of the Enlightenment and the opposition to the church during the time of the Enlightenment, for example. Think of the, the French philosopher Voltaire, one of the, the famous, uh, famous French philosophers in the 18th century who had some very critical words to say about Christianity, especially as he grew older. He, he believed that he was living in the twilight of Christianity, he would say. And at one point, towards the end of his life, in his later years, he, he wrote a letter to the king of Prussia, said this about Christianity. Christianity is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world. Your majesty will do the human race an eternal service by rooting out and destroying this infamous superstition says, my one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise, the finest and most respectable which the human mind can point out. In other words, eradicating the world of Christianity was the most noble task that a human mind could, could endeavor to, to undertake in Voltaire's thinking. And the opposition, of course, to Christianity has continued. Think about it in my lifetime and the, the opposition to the church that the church has faced in, in co under communist regimes. I remember being a, a little boy and missionaries to the USSR, to the Soviet Union would come and talk about persecution in, in the places where they lived and how, how they lived under a regime that was determined to eliminate all religious belief and how churches, synagogues, mosques had all suffered at the hands of the, the Soviet regime, and how Bibles had to be smuggled in, just exciting stories of, of, of churches and believers trying to be, to be faithful to the gospel message, and how the church, even in those, those terrible circumstances, endured. It's, it's estimated that in the 20th century, 20 million Christians were killed at the hands of, of Marxist, communist, atheistic regimes. And yet, the church endures. Despite thousands of years of, of, of opposition, 2,000 years of opposition from, from without the walls of the church, the, the, the church has endured. The church has flourished. The church has grown. The kingdom of God has increased. And not only has the church faced enemies from without, the, the church has faced enemies from within, from, from with our own ranks 
false doctrines and, and corrupt leadership and, and petty, petty arguments, the, the, despite the dysfunction within the church, the, the, the church has endured. The church has flourished. The church survives. How can that be? How is it that the church endures? I can remember being a, a high schooler, and, and one time one of my youth pastors told me, he goes, you know, the surest sign that God is involved in the life of the church is that the church still exists despite the dysfunction, despite the lack of organization, despite poor leadership, despite petty congregants, despite all those things that the church survives, it's one of the surest signs that God's hand is on it. And at the time when he said that, I thought, well, my, that's such a critical statement it kind of seems critical towards leadership especially, but then I, I became a person in a position of leadership in a church, and I, I see how true it is. Despite the imperfections within leadership, within churches, the, the, the church endures. And not only that the church endures as an organization, but, but individually, your commitment to the church endures. Despite the lure of materialism, despite the lure of, of immorality, despite the lure of sleeping in on a Sunday morning, staying I mean, you're, you're here this morning. How, why is that? Why do you continue to be committed to, to the institution of the church? Why do you continue in the path of discipleship? And the answer, of course, is God. God's sustaining grace in the church is why it endures. It's what Gamaliel says here in Acts chapter 5, and it's the truth that we encounter in this text. And, and maybe a question you've been asking yourself, you know, is, is this discipleship that I'm engaged in worth it? Is it, is it worth it to continue my, my commitment to the, to the Lord? As I think about all the other things in life that I could potentially pursue that I can't pursue because I pursue Christ, should I, should I pursue these things instead of Christ? Should I be committed to these things instead of the church? I want to encourage you this morning with this text that it is worth it. The discipleship, the following after the Lord Jesus Christ is worth it. Being out and continue to engage in worship in the midst of COVID is worth it. Being a little cool on a Sunday morning to be committed to the people of God is worth it. Here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we think about this text. The endurance of the church is proof of God's sustaining love and purpose for it. The endurance of the church is proof of God's sustaining love for his church and purpose for his church. The fact that we continue to exist as, as an institution shows that God continues to love us and God continues to have a purpose for us, his people. And that should be a source of huge encouragement to you this morning. What I want to do is I want us to look, first of all, at the reality of opposition to the gospel witness. To just acknowledge, look, there's, there's opposition to the gospel witness that God has called us to. The path of discipleship, of obedient discipleship and, and proclaiming the gospel. There's opposition to that. Let's just acknowledge the reality of that. And then I want us to think about the endurance of the gospel witness. What things has, has God provided that allow our gospel witness to endure? So the reality of opposition to the gospel witness, and then 
the endurance of the gospel witness. Let's first of all look at the reality of opposition to the gospel witness and look at verse 17. Now remember the context. Acts chapter 4, what happened? The apostles were warned, hey, don't teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They said, look, in Acts 4, they said, look, it's up to you to decide what you should tell us to do. We're going to continue to be obedient to God. And then they, in Acts chapter 4, they pray for boldness. God has answered that prayer. They keep teaching. Acts chapter 5, they're performing signs and wonders. Now, let me just kind of clarify some things I said last week. Uh, some of you asked me, well, Daniel, do you believe that God still does miraculous things? It kind of sounds like you're saying you don't believe that God can still do miracles. And, and no, I absolutely, of course, believe that God can and still does do miraculous things. Every time a person turns from death to life, that's, that's a miracle. God has supernaturally intervened in that person's life. I believe that God can even, God can and does even do, do physical miraculous things. I, I believe that he can heal people and, and does do that. And of course, I, I believe that God still intervenes in human lives in that way. But this phrase, signs and wonders, is talking about a particular type of miraculous event. A, 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 it's related here to the sign gifts. And based upon the passages that we looked at in Hebrews and in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, First Corinthians, I, I believe that this type of miraculous thing, you know, and here in Acts chapter 5, everybody is coming and everybody's getting healed. That, that simply doesn't seem to be happening in the same way any longer. So that's that particular type of miraculous event is what I'm talking about here no longer being in effect in, in my opinion. So they're, they're doing these miraculous signs and wonders, verse 16 and earlier, and now the Jews respond. And how should, the, how should the Jewish leaders have responded to these signs and wonders? They should have seen the apostles doing these things. They should have seen the, the people coming to them. And there should have been repentance. They should have said, okay, this is it. This is, these people are proclaiming the message of the Messiah. Jesus must have been the Messiah. We were wrong not to acknowledge that. And they should have turned in faith, in repentance, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what they do. It says that they respond differently. It says that the, there's the high priest rose up and those who are with him, and they say, that is the party of the Sadducees. Now you say, what, what does that mean, the, the party of the Sadducees? Sometimes when we think about Jewish opposition in the book of Acts, we can just kind of lump it all together. Oh, the, the Jews were opposed, and think of them as this monolithic group. And that's, that's not the case. There were several different... The text here translates it parties. There are several different groups within Judaism at this time. We've talked about this as we went through the Gospel of Luke, but let me just remind you a little bit, kind of from most liberal to most conservative of these groups. First of all, you had the Herodians. The Herodians were a primarily secular group. They said some religious things every now and then, but they were almost completely secular and all about party and, and loyalty to, to Rome. They were the tax collectors. They were the supporters of Herod. So you have the Herodians. And then you have the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very theologically liberal. They were the liberal elites. They were the wealthy priests. They were those who controlled access to the temple. They denied very crucial doctrines, so they denied a lot of supernatural things. They denied the, the demonic realm. They denied the resurrection. And, and so you had the Sadducees. And 
the Sadducees were not all that prominent out in the, out in the, the towns and the rural areas, but they're in a great position of power here in Jerusalem. So you have the Herodians, the Sadducees, and then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more theologically conservative. They were very popular among the people. They're prominent in the synagogues and the, the towns where they were teaching. They were the, the scribes were often a subset of the Pharisees. And they were concerned with righteousness. They were concerned with taking Scripture literally and seriously. They were very popular, but they were also, as you know from what we read of them in the Gospels, they were infected with, with legalism. They exchanged God for their traditions. And so they would, they would want to obey Scripture, and they would kind of have all these rules and regulations for how they should do so, and then became more concerned about the rules and the regulations than the, the Scripture, and the, more importantly, the God that, that Scripture described. And then you had, even further to the right, you had the zealots. You know, these, were the, these were the political revolutionaries. You know, they're your, your MAGA guys. You're, they're tea partiers or whatever. They're, they're the, the political revolutionaries. Conservative. They want independence from Rome, and they're, they're, they're quite passionate about it. And interestingly enough, you find people from all of these groups deciding to follow Jesus. Now, in the book of Acts, the Sad- in, here in Jerusalem, the Sadducees are more powerful. And the witness to the kingdom directly attacks their power, right? So this gospel message is a direct attack upon the power that the Sadducees and the, other within the others within the Sanhedrin have. Now, they're motivated to act by jealousy. God's kingdom and their kingdom cannot coexist. And their thinking here is, let's arrest the apostles, and if you put these people who are preaching this message in a place where they can't proclaim the message, the message can't be proclaimed. So let's put these guys in prison. Sometimes people look at the Gospels and the type of people who oppose Jesus, and they say something like this. They say, well, the people who oppose Jesus were the, the theological conservatives, and they, they, they failed to be obedient truly to God, and, that, and that's true, but it's not just theological conservatives who can struggle to be obedient to God, right? Here we see it's the, the theologically liberal, and the, the point is this. What we see in Scripture and what we see in the world today is that the world's powers are ultimately going to have to either decide, are we going to submit to God and his kingdom, or are we going to oppose him? All power systems will ultimately find themselves at points in conflict with biblical Christianity, be it a power structure in a school, be it in a community organization, be it in a church, be it in a company, be it in a political realm, all the world must either bow to Jesus as the Christ or at some point decide to be in rebellion to him. Now, sometimes the encounter we encounter is going to be just outright opposition. It's going to be conscious opposition to the witness of the gospel that we are called to engage in. We're going to be in a, a communist regime, and there's going to be persecution. Or we're going to find ourselves here in, in the States, and there's going to be opposition and ridicule from those who desire to, to not live a life in obedience to the kingdom. Your sexual ethics, your desire to witness to those of other faith, all those things are going to be found to be in opposition to the power structures of the world, and the opposition is going to be overt. We have to prepare for that. That's the reality of opposition to the gospel witness. But sometimes the opposition is going to be more more subtle. 
Sometimes the opposition of the gospel message is going to be more subtle. It's going to be potentially internal within our own hearts as individuals or within the church. There's going to be a love for material things that's going to creep into our hearts and cause us to abandon our mission to proclaim the gospel boldly. There's going to be allegiance to earthly kingdoms that's going to cause the the church to forget her primary purpose and cause us to act in ways that are contrary to the kingdom. It's going to cause us to yearn for earthly power or within a power structure that's that's illusory and and, and temporary. We're going to begin to adopt the world's morality. All those things are threats of opposition to the gospel witness, the bold, consistent gospel message that we've been called to proclaim. There's going to be external rejection of biblical morality by by all sorts of forces. Opposition to the gospel is going to be consistent. It's going to be real. The church and its gospel message is under constant assault by a variety of forces, both within within and without, because a true biblical kingdom lifestyle is always going to be at odds with other kingdoms. When I was in junior high, I, I played football uh, because in Texas, everybody plays football. Uh, that's not that much of an exaggeration of a statement there. Now, in fact, there were so many kids that played football, they had, they had four different football teams. I was in the, the smallest of the, I was in the bottom 25% of the, the football players in terms of size. Not a big surprise there, I'm sure. But I was, I was there and, and, um, the coach told me, he had all the teams get together one day. The head coach had all the teams get together one day, and we are doing some drills together. And he said, okay, uh, Bennett, I want you to stand right here. And so, you know, I'm the bottom 25%. I, I stood right there where he told me to stand. He said, okay, now I want uh, Aaron, why don't you get over here? Now, Aaron was, uh, Aaron was the biggest guy on the football. He went on to play Division One football. And he said, all right, Aaron, I want you to stand about 10 yards away, and I want you to just, I just want you to run full full force at Bennett, and I want you to, to see if you can knock him on his rear end. And Bennett, I want you to stand there. Don't move, don't block, don't do anything. Now, this, this coach was also a physics teacher, surprisingly, which, um, you know. He said, uh, Bennett, I want you to get ready. Get ready. So, okay, I'm, I'm ready. And so, uh, he said, go, and Aaron ran at me, and, and uh, later I woke up, and, and uh, you know, the, the coach said, look, I, I told you to be ready. And I thought to myself, I don't think readiness was the issue here. Like, I think I needed to, to do something different. I, I, I think lack of preparation was not the problem here. There was this incredible force coming at me. Now, when it comes to our gospel witness, there are incredible forces opposed to the, the gospel that we're claiming, and, and they're coming straight at us. Now, as these, as these, as these forces come at us, as they, they desire to, to squelch our gospel witness, what hope do we have of endurance? Well, in and of ourselves, just standing there, we have no hope of opposing the, gospel, the, the forces opposed to the gospel witness that we desire to proclaim. What hope do we have, though? The hope that we have is found in the Lord. And let's talk about the endurance of the gospel witness. So that's the second thing I want to talk about. Let's talk about the endurance of the gospel witness. You doing okay still, Philip? Okay. It's a long passage. I'm just getting started here. Okay. Uh, the endurance of the gospel witness. 
Let's, let's, let's see here three things that help us endure in our gospel witness. Number one, we see that God's purpose endures, okay? The first thing, we're going to see three things that, that God has that continue to endure. So first of all, God's purpose endures. Look, look what happens here in verse 19. They're in the, the apostles are there in the, the prison, and it says, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. He brings them out. He says, go stand in the temple and speak to the to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, what I want you to see there is that God's purpose for his church doesn't change at all in the face of opposition. God doesn't just send his angels and say, okay, let's, let's talk, guys. Um, man, I, I did not see this coming. A, a jail? Well, um, let's do this. Why don't you guys become like a, a social organization for like, you know, doing just doing nice things for people. Why don't you become kind of like this, this organization that can uh, help people w- pay their taxes or something? He, just, no, he didn't change the purpose. He says, okay, guys, uh, let's get you out of here. I want you to continue to preach the words of this life. Go out there to the people who need to hear the gospel message and continue to do so. It's a beautiful phrase, the, all the words of this life, despite hostility and opposition, this is what the people need. I want you to go and continue to speak it. Acts 1.8 still stands. And what do the apostles do? They do exactly what God tells them to do. They go right back to where they were. They begin to, to teach. And I want you to get, notice the, the intellectual foundation of true discipleship. There's a knowledge that people must possess to know God rightly. And even here in Acts 5, at the height of the Holy Spirit's work and ministry, in terms of a visible ministry, it's not just, it's not just an emotional experience. There's knowledge that people need to have. There's, there's intellectual understanding of who God is that they need to have in order to rightly respond to him with their lives. And the same is true for us. So God's purpose endures despite opposition. Number two, God's provision endures. Now, verses, uh, verses 21 and following, are, are, are th- there's a lot of humor here, right? They call together the council, and they say, okay, br- bring in the apostles. They go to the prison. The guards are still there. The doors are locked, but the apostles are gone. They come back, and they say, um, yeah, we don't know where they are. The door's locked, guard's there. What, what, what do we do now? And it says that, that, that everyone's perplexed. They're perplexed. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do next to, to deal with this. And as they're kind of wondering, what do we do with guys that aren't in the place that we left them? Someone comes, hey, guy, I, I found the guys. Do you remember where we took them from? They're, they're back there. And they're doing that thing we told them not to do. Well, now we're really mad. Okay, now we're really good. Bring them back in here. So they bring them back in here. What do we see God's doing here? His provision is enduring. He, he first of all, he providentially opens, supernaturally opens the prison doors, and and then they, they come in and they say, "Look, uh, didn't we tell you not to teach His name, and yet?" You're still doing this, and you're bringing this man's blood upon us. You're, you're, you're saying that we're culpable for his death. And Peter and the other apostles say, look, we have to obey God. We told you that. And then, then what do they do? They tell him the gospel again. <laughs> they, they, hey, as long as we're here, let us share the gospel with you once again. 
here's your sin, here's what Jesus did, here's how you need to believe in his name. And you can have repent, offering Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. We're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. What is God doing? God is granting the request to their prayer from Acts chapter 4, God's provision for his people to do the ministry that he has called them to do continues. He gives them the boldness that they need to do the things he's called them to do. And Peter, Peter acknowledges here, and it's, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. God has, has given us the Holy Spirit to continue to help us testify to the truth of these things. You know, there's, there's two phrases that I often hear people say that are, are both, both wrong in some senses. A lot of times I'll hear people talking about what God would have them to do, and they say, you know what, I can't, and they say whatever. So, you know, I, I can't love my wife. I can't be obedient to my parents. You know, I, I can't be committed to a life of discipleship. I can't be committed to the church. I can't fulfill my obligations to my employer. I can't, and I can't, and I can't, and I can't. And they're saying, I can't, and they're finishing the sentence with things that God has clearly called them to do and has given them the provision to do. Now, it's true they can't do those things on their own, but God has given them the means by which they can be obedient to him, and that's through the work of the Spirit. But oftentimes, and I hear Christians say this very, I say it myself frequently, look, I I can't continue to endure. I, I can't continue to have a good attitude in this situation. I can't continue to be patient with this person. I can't continue to be a, a, good, a good father to my children whenever they act like whatever. It's not true. God's provision endures. I also a lot of times hear people say, I must, and then they, fill, they finish the sentence with something that God hasn't told them they have to do. You know, I, I must do, these, do this fourth job, and I, I must help my children do this, this extracurricular activity. I, I must get into this university. I must do this, and I must do that. And it's like, you know what? Those things aren't necessarily good or bad, but they're not musts. God's provision endures. God is going to enable you to do exactly what he desires you to do and he is not going to give you the ability to do the things that he would not have you do. And nor are you responsible or culpable to do them. We have been equipped exactly. God's provision endures. And then finally, we see God's plan endures. God's plan endures. Look at verse 33. They hear the gospel message yet again, not excited about it. They're enraged. They desire to kill them. And then this Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up. He is a, a person of great prominence. And you say, well, who is Gamaliel? He's a, he's a Pharisee. And even though the Pharisees were viewed very negatively by Luke and the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, here in the book of Acts, we see some real hope among the, the, the group of the Pharisees because the Pharisees believe the scriptures. And so they're some of the early converts to Christianity as they believe the truth of the scriptures. Gamaliel was a disciple or maybe even a relative of Hillel, who was a famous conservative Pharisee. And Gamaliel, this guy who stands up, has a very, very, well, he has a, a disciple of his who's going to become very prominent in the book of Acts and become very famous. And that, of course, is Paul. 
So Gamaliel, as he stands up here, knows, knows Paul. He's in relationship at this, not, at this point known as, as Saul. And he stands up and he makes an argument. And the argument that he makes is kind of twofold. First of all, he says, look, man-made plans are not going to be ultimately successful. And he gives two examples. He talks about a guy who led a tax revolt. We have stories of him and other sources. This is from like the year 6 AD, uh, this, this guy named uh, uh, Judas the Galilean. And then he also mentions uh, Thutis, right? And so uh, he says, these guys died, the, fo- the guys or the followers died or were scattered, okay? So first part of his argument, man-made plans will not endure. And then the second part of his argument is, God-ordained plans cannot be stopped. He says, look, be careful. If it's of God, you will not be able to throw, overthrow them. That's verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 39. You might even be found opposing God. It says they, they took his advice. They beat the disciples and then they, they released them. And the disciples do something very instructive for us. Look at verse 41. They left the presence of the council and how did they respond to this, this suffering that they had endured? They respond with rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then they continue to do the thing that God has called the church to do. That God called the church to do here in the first century. That God called the church to do at 1000 AD. And the thing that God continues to call the church today to do here in central Illinois in 2020. It says they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that the Messiah, is Jesus. A couple thoughts of application here as we think about how God's plan endures. Number one, know that your success cannot be stopped if your passion is to be obedient to God. You say, okay, my, my desire is to fulfill God's, God's plan. Know that if that's your, your goal, that your, your success will not be stopped. It, it can't be thwarted. Sometimes people say, well, you know, 2020 is the, the lost year. Hardly. <laughs> you know, if, if your plans are earthly plans, yeah, sure, it hasn't gone according to plan. I think we can all agree with that. Not, not a controversial statement. Say, but a couple surprises this year. But if, if your goal this year is, I want to live in godly obedience, I want to walk a path of discipleship and love others, and if that's been your, your pursuit and your desire, man, this has been a banner year, right? You're knocking it out of the park. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Your success, if your goal is, is eternal, eternal reward and pursuing God's glory, man, a pandemic can't stop that. Government opposition can't stop that. So understand this. Your success can't be stopped if you're pursuing eternal things. Secondly, the the church endures. Secondly, your failures aren't going to be permanent either. Man, that is encouraging to me. The things in my ministry as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor that are of me me and not of God, they're not going to mess up God's plan. They're not going to make it into eternity. I'm not burdened with those things forever. Those things aren't going to last. I can repent I can turn from them. I can receive forgiveness for my sins, forgiveness for my failings, and those things don't last. 
Then finally, an application here is I need to respond with joy to opposition and persecution. We're such an angry people right now, right? We're angry. We're every, every possible affront to us is an excuse for us to retaliate and get people back. It's not how the apostles respond. It's not how they see their enemies come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. These Pharisees are going to be some of the, the early ad- adopters of Christianity, the early people who, who turn to, to faith. And they're still going to struggle, but they're going to place their faith in Christ, many of them. They don't get that way because the apostles revile them and hate them. They get that way because the apostles continue to love them and with boldness proclaim the gospel. The endurance of the church is not proof of our goodness. The endurance of the church is not proof of our our talent. It's not proof of our inherent abilities. The endurance of the church is proof of God's sustaining love for us and his purpose for us. Be encouraged by that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have given us the ability uh, to walk in obedience to you, that you allow us to endure, that our endurance is not based upon our own tenacity, upon our our own uh, ability, but but based upon the work of your spirit within our lives. Father, help us to continue to endure as, as individual believers. Help us to continue to pursue your purposes of discipleship for us. And then, Father, as, as a church, just as this, as this local church, help us to continue to love you and to love your people and to walk in obedience to you, proclaiming the gospel message to one another and to a lost world. And then, Father, we pray for the global church. We pray that we would be a, a church that is honoring to your name and loving, loving you well. And we pray this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus.